Atkins, and this is episode 20 of our Treasure Island Pedagogies podcast series from the Center for Innovation in Education at the University of Liverpool, where we share our light bulb moments, teaching props and pedagogies as we cohabit our Treasure Island, the space for special contact time with students. And uh, as usual, I have a, a lovely uh, queue of guests today, Christopher Edmonds, Elizabeth Hitson, Gary Fisher and Pete McDonald. And as usual, I will ask you to briefly introduce yourself, uh, your name, your discipline, and uh, your current role, and how did you arrive here? Hi, Dundee. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah, uh, my name is Chris Edmonds. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Physics uh, here at University of Liverpool. Uh, my background is particle accelerated physicist, but I started spending more and more time working on public engagement. Eventually, I made the transition to teaching and scholarship, so I spend much more time student-focused now at University of Liverpool, where I do lots of open-ended projects. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hidson. I'm a senior lecturer in international teacher education at the University of Sunderland. As in my background would be secondary computing teaching, but now I teach teachers to teach, which is what my son finds to be a hilarious part of my job. Um, I got interested in this uh, podcast because I, I belong as a, a member of the Association for Learning Technology, and it just popped up and I was fascinated by the idea. And when I looked at the website and looked at the guests and had a few listens, I thought, oh, I'd love to be part of that. So thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's great to have you on board, Elizabeth. That's lovely. Okay, and uh, Gary... Ah, yes, thank you for the introduction. So, yes, yeah, so I am a lecturer in teacher education and technology enhanced learning at Lincoln College. Um, but my background prior to that is in classics at the University of Nottingham. So teaching philosophy, history, ancient Latin and so forth, and somehow made the leap from Latin to digitally enhanced learning. I'm not quite sure what that step in my career was, but that's what I do full time now. So that's me. <laughs> Brilliant. I think uh, we, we have had so many different trajectories on this programme. It's always fascinating to see how people arrive here. Last but not least, Pip. Hello there. Um, my name's Pip McDonald. Um, I'm currently a senior learning technology project officer based at the Royal Agricultural University in Sirencester. Um, I actually work remotely. Um, so uh, I actually work in the northeast in Sunderland too, um, Elizabeth, and I did used to work at the University of Sunderland in the Language Centre and um, in the capacity of an academic tutor teaching English for academic purposes a long time ago. So I kind of came into learning technology through a, a teaching route um, and arguably that's the best way, um, learning first. So um, my current role involves uh, supporting technology enhanced transnational learning or TETL for short. Um, and um, I originally studied philosophy at university. So as, a, as an original discipline, um, and I believe that gives you a good grounding um, in, in any further field. I think I can see Gary nodding. <laughs> There. Okay, brilliant. Lovely to have you on board, Pip, as well. So, um, one of the first things we asked you to share is one of your light bulb moments with students. So, this is where you felt students were getting it and what made this happen. So, can, can I ask you to summarize your light bulb moments? One of, one of those many that you might have had over your career so far. I've had one that actually occurred quite, quite recently in it occurred bizarrely not while I was teaching, but rather actually during during the break from teaching. It happened during one of the tea breaks in a session I was teaching on one of our teacher training courses. Um, and to explain why, I'll give a little bit of context. So at Lincoln College, we're a predominantly a further education provider. So we've got a strong emphasis on trade and vocational skills. 
I'd say most of our future training courses that I work on are aimed at people who kind of recently left industry and are currently employed as educators within the college. So it might be someone who worked in software development, worked in mechanical engineering or construction or whatever for 10 years. And then for whatever reason, they made that decision to begin teaching. And part of joining the teaching profession is they agreed to complete an initial teacher education course. Um, and so I only began teaching on it quite recently, and I'll confess I found it quite intimidating because not only am I teaching people who are mostly twice my age, but they're also people who are currently employed as teachers and have taken a morning out of their working week to take part in these courses. You know, these are people who are teaching 20, 30 hours a week, and I was quite on edge because I was quite conscious that every hour they spent with me was an hour that they then couldn't spend doing marking or planning or catching up with students and so forth. So I was quite anxious about making this sort of worth their time and giving them, you know, knowledge-rich curriculum. Um, and so I remember not long ago, we were having a session, and I think we were looking at some learning design framework or another. And I noticed we were kind of midway through the session. People were looking tired, so, you know, cool time, let's take 10 minutes, have a have a tea, have a coffee. Um, and that light bulb moment came when I kind of noticed two of my students who were usually first in line for a latte, they were in the middle of looking at one of their lesson plans that they were teaching that afternoon and talking about how they could apply that framework we've been looking at to their own teaching. And they were kind of doing the awkward thing where you're half sitting, half standing. They were finding this conversation quite useful, but also conscious they only had 10 minutes to get into queue at Costa. Um, so I said to them, you know, you guys carry on talking. I'll go grab your drinks. I'll leave you guys to it. And then the kind of light bulb moment occurred to me while I was getting those drinks because, you know, we're a vocational college. We're really, really good at work-based learning. Um, every task we do is grounded in a vocational context. So our software engineering students aren't just told to write some JavaScript or some Python or whatever. They're told to imagine they're a software developer at a company and their line manager has said, develop a program that does this. Um, our mechanical engineers aren't just told about how resistance and tension and metal fatigue work as abstract concepts. We break out our machine that they're going to be working with and show them for real as if they're going to be using it in a professional workshop. And yeah, I was kind of going in the opposite direction as a teacher educator. I was taking the individuals who are working as educators at the same institution as me and putting them into this kind of almost contrived classroom style setting where I was the teacher and they were the students and so forth. So it got me thinking kind of what is the work-based approach to teacher education? And I was standing there with tea order in my hand and it kind of hit me it's the enlightenable moment it was the staff room it's the environment where teachers come together to plan their lessons discuss ideas share resources get advice on marking have a whinge about their line manager etc um and most importantly put the kettle on um and that was exactly what those students of mine have been doing during our tea break and so that was kind of my light bulb moment of why am i trying to take these professional educators who are studying while working and treating them as if they're full-time undergraduates who i used to teach back when I was a Latin teacher at uh, Nottingham. So why don't I embrace the fact that they're professional educators who are teaching lessons after lunch, who've got a load of planning to get done, who are behind on their marking and so forth, and use their time with me as a space, as a forum, as a workshop, for them to develop those skills, not just with me in the room, but with their, their colleagues in the room. So now kind of, rather than spending that time, you know, deconstructing different learning design models, how they're formulated, what their principles are, and the philosophy behind them and so forth, we take the learning design models, we look at them, we understand them, we discuss them, and then we use them, we plan some lessons. We say, right, Andy, you're teaching your business and finance students a lesson on leadership styles next week. We've just looked at Diana Lorillard's learning as a design science framework for design, for example. Let's use that model, and as a group, let's plan that lesson. Um, and in a way, that kind of feels like a no-brainer, but also 
it, it, it took me a while for it to be obvious to me, really, because you know a lot of these a lot of these educators who I'm working with they teach practical skills and they describe themselves as practical people, and so that's exactly what I'm trying to do now with that. They're learning by doing, and thanks to that light bulb moment, I'm providing them a space for that. Really, hopefully. Great, yeah. Um, I'm just thinking, does this resonate with others? So, well, clearly, you've been very much thinking about, I mean, one of the things about teaching is very much thinking about the students and their context and what, what is always meeting the students and, and, and where they are at. But I, I can see, Elizabeth, you're nodding. Yes, it, it, absolutely, those real moments. Um, I have something similar, Gary, in that uh, when I set my students off on a project, I say to them, OK, imagine the head has just given you a budget and you've got free reign, but you've actually got to back it up with some theory, some literature. What are you going to spend your money on? You know, how are you going to put your money where your mouth is kind of thing? And, and it works really, really well because then they think about if it was their school and their head teacher and they were being asked to put in a school based intervention of some kind, they would actually have to do that research and present it and convince the governors or the trustees or the head teacher or the head of department. And I love those real moments. And in fact, that leads on as a very nice segue into my own kind of light bulb moment. Because my students are everywhere else except here in uh, Sunderland, um, I do a lot of online supervision and, and in this very manner. We, you know, we get together on Teams, we have a conversation, we have a tutorial. And what I love is to hear back what I've been teaching. And perhaps I haven't had that conversation at that moment, but I know that somewhere in, in the 12 week program, they've picked up things that I've been saying. They've thought about them, they've turned them around and presented it back to me as if it's the most natural thing in the world. I'm thinking, yes, my job is done. <laughs> they've heard about, you know, they, they've heard what I wanted them to hear and they've thought about it. And I love that that kind of international language of pedagogy. You stick two teachers in a room and you're going to have curriculum assessment, pedagogy, all that sort of thing coming out, you know, no matter how experienced or inexperienced. And also, as you say, Gary, you know, it's it's not right to teach, uh, treat um, people who are on initial teacher training program as if they're a fresh-faced undergrad, because in my situation, these are very often teachers who are working in the international context, but who just haven't been through a process of initial teacher education, initial teacher training. And so they might have been teaching for nine years in the international sector, but don't have a certificate. So, you know, those conversations can be really, really fruitful. But, you know, nobody is ever so experienced that they can't learn from a good engagement with other people. And I just find that, you know, those those moments where you get two teachers in a room talking about things to be a real light bulb moment. I love that. So thank you for that insight, Gary. I mean, I, what I love from Gary's example as well, that as you said, two of your students and participants in that case, we, we, they were talking about how they can apply your framework into their teaching. So that was a lovely link or insight about research and or theory and practice. And they obviously were gaining something, or, I mean, ideally. So yeah, that was a lovely moment that you could see how what you were um, teaching them was making a um, they were really reflecting on their practice and how they can adopt it. Elizabeth, just asking on that, you mentioned that international language of education. Do you mean it's the shared language? But I'm, I'm guessing, did you have a set do, because of the international context, do you find it's a, really a shared language? Or do you also get um, different flavours of the language? The, how does that work in your... 
A little bit. We get some of the international context and regional context, but because we're working to the British teacher standards, we tend to use that the same sort of language as, as any other initial teacher trainee. But one of the, the great ways of, of, of hearing this, uh, how it's impacting, is when a trainee, I will call them a trainee, in their school they might just be a, you know, an experienced member of staff, yeah. when a trainee will say back to me, oh, and I've been asked to lead a professional development session on this topic that I've been looking at. And I just think, wow, that's fantastic. So not only are they engaging in initial teacher training for their own benefit, they're actually then cascading it. And in some parts of the world where there aren't the same kind of um, access to initial teacher training, sometimes that goes out from the international schools into the local government schools. And so you find that although you're a different kind of school system, you find that the wider region is benefiting. You know, uh, what, what's the... the the, the tide lifting all ships, you know, and I love that. And and it is really, you know, it is literally about that that shared understanding of what is assessment, what is pedagogy, what is behaviour management, how does that work, no matter where you might be in the world. And it's, it's surprising how much more similar the issues are than different, which I always find to be an interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Anyone, Chris or Pip, what are your light bulb moments? Happy to follow up. Again, I really appreciated uh, just how immersive the stuff that Gary, the workplace um, learning experiences, how, that, how immersive they sounded. Um, and I guess that resonates really strongly for myself. So physics is an incredibly creative subject. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the fun is. But often when it's introduced at school, it, it comes across as facts and very procedural approach to solving problems. So for example, this is a mechanics problem. Um, how do you solve that mechanics problem? Um, but once you get to the real world, uh, it's it's very, very, very different. And the approach that's taken in schools is not entirely bad. There are a lot of rules you've got to learn um, whilst getting to grips with physics in order to become an effective physicist. But in terms of actually being a good physicist, there's so much more to know. Um, so that first opportunity to uh, initiate your own investigation, uh, it's super intimidating. You know, it's not exactly clear as to what's going to make a good question. Um, and how do you go about solving that question? How do you break it down to its components and come up with something that is solvable? But as soon as students kind of cross that bridge, um, the questions keep on coming and these really significant opportunities for independent learning, uh, they come along soon afterwards as well. So I think that's a really wonderful thing to watch. Um, and I think that experience in completing open-ended projects uh, it's a really important development opportunity and it's actually essential to becoming, uh, being able to access the most interesting physics problems. Um, so yeah, that, that really immersive approach is something I really appreciate and that's my life moment. So what is it that you do, Chris, to enable students to have these open-ended projects and this questioning and that's quite a shift in terms of how students as you said were used to doing things in school and as opposed to almost like literally doing this light bulb moment for them and when you're setting them on the path of these creative projects and problem solving absolutely so again similar to elizabeth's example uh, we give them a budget i think did you say yours was 30 pounds this is a 30 pound <laughs> this might be smaller than you uh, envisage now <laughs> so it's a very small budget that these guys get um <laughs> and they have to they have to basically create something that's innovative 
Uh, we set them a criteria of using some sort of sensor. They have to analyze the sensor data and then create some meaningful output of this. So they start using all their physics skills in doing something that's actually useful. Um, we work a little bit with external partners. So we've had hospitals, for example, come up with problems that they wanted solving within the wards and the students will work towards that. Um, and a lot of the time, students will identify their own problems they want to work on. So, for example, this year we've had a group of students who uh, wanted to listen to their plant. So they've come up with a sensor that they connect to the plant using the same sort of connections that you use on a heart monitor in a hospital. Sorry, this is a plant, um, a green... Yeah, I agree. With that. Organism. No, no, as, it, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was a well-traveled plant as well. He brought it in on the bus every week and <laughs> they'd connect these little electrodes to it. And by the end of this uh, semester, they were making music out of it, which was absolutely fantastic. But they were looking at the ways in which it responded to different stimuli in the environment. So changes in light, uh, okay. water condition, things like that. Oh, brilliant. And it's great. They really get into it. It's really nice to watch them really take off with that kind of thing. And then do you, I mean, sounds, these projects all sound amazing. What happens also when, do you get students to present to each other? So in terms of um, the peers all doing their own little projects, do, do, do things happen as they share what they're working on or? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a group project to start off with. Um, we, we try and help them navigate the complexities of this. <laughs> There's quite a few political issues that we haven't had to deal with in the past. Um, and then partway through the semester, about halfway through, just to make sure they're kind of heading in the right direction because they're given a lot of freedom and it's quite easy for them to go in a, I wouldn't say a wrong direction, but not a useful or meaningful direction. Uh, so we have a video presentation halfway through and then at the end, um, the end of the semester, we have something to me that feels a bit like Christmas Day where this is big uh, set of presentations. Everyone's got their devices set up in front of them. You've got these weird sound effects in the background that they'll have. <laughs> and it's just a brilliant environment. You get to see what the students have done. Uh, they get to go and explore and see what others have done too. And there's, there's normally some really nice conversations surrounding that. Oh, brilliant. We should have a soundscape uh, excerpt in the podcast. <laughs> that. Okay, thank you, Chris. That's brilliant. Uh, Pip, can I ask your light bulb moment, please? Yep, sure. So, um, so with a light bulb, we have light and we have the bulb. Um, I'm going to go all metaphorical. So I'm going to present the bulb first, the bulb narrative. So I've been interested in the possibility of critical zoom literacy and the issue of uh, the extent to, whether, uh, to which literacy in that case would be a kind of commodity. Um, so we, um, the context was a large large classrooms on Zoom, maybe up to 150 students. So there's, a, there's a, an issue there of how to engage 150 students in a 45-minute uh, session. So we tried to use an escape room using uh, breakout rooms. Now, escape rooms are nothing new, but they were new to us. So we needed to get it right to make sure that we could get this to work. So um, the purpose was to explore Zoom literacy. So um, I focused on staff training, on how to train the staff how to use Zoom, but it was kind of assumed that students could use Zoom automatically. So uh, it goes without saying that not all students are digital natives, and perhaps arguably we shouldn't be using that term at all. So I created a series of Zoom-based multimodal scenarios, such as when to mute, when to share screen, how to use the private chat for digital differentiation, so this was a kind of experiment in scenario-based learning or project-based learning. Um, 
so when students um, worked out the code from the scenario, they went to the Royal Agricultural University Digital Transformation blog, they entered the code and they received a digital badge. So that was the bulb narrative. So let me, me share the, the kind of light narrative. Um, so what I found was actually that uh, team teaching is critical for large online classroom contexts. So as I said, up to 150 students, it's a real challenge to engage that many students in one setting. So students probably need two, two um, teachers or educators or lecturers in, in that setting to, to receive two lots of pedagogical energy to keep them engaged. Um, also, one of the outputs of this kind of uh, experiment was the to present my findings of this uh, to the Collaborative Action Research Network events in 2021. So it's really good to share things, even when they don't go as planned. You know, as, as learning technologists, it's really important not to overpromise and underdeliver. We have to be realistic and always try to put the learning first. The other output. Um, was to reflect, the other light narrative was to reflect on technology-enhanced learning in itself. Um, so I did a presentation at the Association of Learning Technologists Winter Conference a couple of years ago. One of the participants of this uh, session um, from Northampton University said, technology is itself not a pedagogy, it's possibly an agnostic pedagogy. So there's always that risk, isn't there, of um, assuming that we need to use technology to engage students. Obviously, over the pandemic, as a result of that, we we, we had to do that as a result of that. But um, coming out of it and before, it wasn't the case. And we, we risk, as what Sharma and Barrett said in 2007, if we default to technology, we run the risk of uh, the worst of both worlds. So students kind of wanting to use technology and some don't. So that, that was uh, the bulb, uh, and you also got the light. Brilliant. Thank you, Pete. That's brilliant. So I, I would like now to ask you if you, we are rowing over to our islands, um, where we have this special contact time with students. So it's not a deserted island. It's, it's where we go and uh, teach students and spend and trying to have these light bulb moments with them. So what would be a teaching prop or a pedagogy that you might want to pack in our little boats as we row over to the island so they can be useful to us? I'll jump in. I'll, I'll be bringing a mug and a kettle. Um, I think so many, so many great conversations I had over a cup of tea. And I think it's something in the back of people's mind that having a cup of tea, speaking to someone who's drinking a beverage in front of you, it kind of signals you're in a in a supportive environment. I don't know whether it simulates memories of tea with granny or something along those lines, but people's demeanor does noticeably change when there's a hot beverage involved. And I think it's <laughs> it's quite disarming and quite humanizing as well for the educator to be seen slurping a latte and getting a coffee mustache as well. So I think it's very <laughs> simple and quite a quite a potent, powerful of you know, quite a potent symbol of equality, I think actually, that we're all all human beings. So we'll see. I'd be bringing a, a cup of tea and a kettle. Yeah, and it was linking to your uh, light bulb moment as well, where you had this epiphany when exactly in, the, in those situations and those scenarios. Yeah. So, um, okay. And my Costa loyalty card, I'll bring that as well. A what? Sorry. And my Costa Coffee loyalty card, I'll bring that as well. <laughs> oh, we can't advertise on this. Uh, we have to be agnostic. <laughs> to... <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah, so uh, I think, yeah, um, a mug and a coffee or some, something like that. 
I was only being silly about you know advertising. Any high street brand will do. I'm and, not yes, there. or local supporting local brands. <laughs> okay, anyone else? I am happy to go. I just saw Elizabeth on mute at the same time. Yeah. So I've actually I've, I've brought a prop with me here. Um, for me, it's anything that's going to inspire curiosity. And I know this is a, this is quite a visual thing, so apologies, but if you guys can see it and you can kind of react, it's just two pipes that I've got with me in front of me. Okay, um, one of them's uh, made out of plastic, and uh, one of them is made out of copper. Okay, and I've got a little magnet just here. And um, copper's not magnetic, so if we get this magnet, I stick it on the copper, and you know it's not going to stick to it or anything like that. It just comes off quite easily. Um, and then what I'm going to do is through the uh, the first pipe here, this plastic pipe. I'm going to I'm just going to drop the magnet through it. Okay, and it's about two foot long. The dimensions of both these tubes are exactly the same. The magnet falls from me, and straight away it's out and it's away across my carpet. Let me just get that back. <laughs> we've got our carpet tube. And we drop this copper tube, and as I said, it's not a magnetic material, so I'm not expecting this magnet to stick to it in any way. Okay, so if I drop that through the, like that, and you might expect it to fall exactly the same way, so I'm dropping it now, and it's still falling, still falling, and then it just pops out like that, okay. <laughs> and I love anything like that, because I think... For many, the first time I saw it, it's definitely not the result that I expected. And I saw a few of your faces kind of tilt to one side there as well. So maybe it's a little bit different to what you expected too, because I think there's, there's a very real difference between being told you need to know something and wanting to know something. And I think that demonstration or that kind of demonstration, it really inspires curiosity. And I think with our physics students in particular, they've got a lot of knowledge already and they probably have the basic tools they need to start kind of interrogating that situation that we've just seen. And they can start asking questions and trying to figure out or trying to build some sort of story as to what's going on and then really working out why it is that magnet takes just so long to fall down that tube. And that's what I'm taking with me. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you why it falls down that tube if you wanted, but you probably don't want to know that. You do want to know. <laughs> yeah, no, you're going to have to tell us. Yeah. So, okay, okay. So this... Um, this tube, as I said, it's not magnetic, but what actually happens is there's the electrons in that tube, because it's metal, it's a conductor, there's electrons in the surface of the material that are free to move around. And then what happens as the magnet starts falling through the tube, it starts moving those electrons uh, in the metal, and that produces a magnetic field. And that magnetic field is a very temporary magnetic field that's dependent on the motion of the magnet, but it actually opposes the motion of the magnet. So it decelerates the magnet as it falls. Mm -hmm. It's quite beautiful to watch though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I, I guess it's a nice uh, visual to demonstrate how you're getting students to be, as, as you said, interested in asking those questions and wanting, what did you say, wanting them to know why yeah, things exactly. happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So having them ask good questions. So rather than telling them, these are the facts, mm -hmm. leading them to the question, having them ask the question, and then help their thought process to understand what it is that they're seeing. And then it's uh, the penny will drop or the magnetic <laughs> drop or not, yes. Yeah, it's the case of which drops the fastest. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Grace. So we've got uh, some mug, coffee, uh, magnet, well, tubes uh, already in the... Elizabeth or Pip, what would you add to the boat? 
I feel a bit of a disadvantage. I do have a coffee cup, but it's not that interesting and I don't have anything fancy to show you. So I'm just going to have to tell you that uh, I, I really like mental shortcuts. I'm always trying to find a way to shortcut the thinking process because it, it's really about what you do with the knowledge rather than forcing people to step through every single bit of, of the, the, the path to get there. So one of the things I realised on one of my modules is that if students can construct a title with the necessary concepts, they immediately have bypassed a whole load of waste of time and they've got where you want them. So I'm forever saying, you know, this is a case study of because I say that a thousand times a year now. And really it's about getting them to think about um, the fact that there is a methodology, that there are a group of students they might be accessing, that there's a learning theory behind that, that there's a learning need that needs to be addressed. And then you've got to tag on the, the geographical um, location and school setting. So it might be a case study of a pull-out EAL intervention um, to it for dyslexic students in a Hong Kong primary school. But if I can get them to construct the title in just that way, they've immediately hit the kind of the major learning outcomes. They, they can't they can't avoid them because, you know, the way sometimes you read a piece of work, you think, how have they missed the fact that they needed to do this or that? And it was really a simple thing just to try and take that in hand and force them through these mental shortcuts and then just to keep repeating them. So every time I hear them back and I hear a nice title, it's back with that uh, that light bulb moment. But I've been doing that a lot more in the last few years. So I've got my kind of title constructomatic in, in the abstract sense, sorry, nothing visual. I need to make something. I need to make, I, I'll get one of my learning technologists to create something whiz bang where you put something in and then it churns it and it pops it out with a beautiful title. I'll get that going for next year. But they've also got things like the methodology formula. So I run a case study module. So I want them to tell me about case study in education, not, you know, what is that? What does it mean to you? I want them to tell me about different forms of research methods because I want them to understand how the research methods will answer the research question. And I want them to talk about triangulation. So the research um, you know, methodology formula becomes case study, method, 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 triangulation. And I'll just count that off when I'm doing my online talks with them. And they eventually get there with that as well. And the other thing, I'm loving these mental shortcuts, you can tell. Um, the inverted pyramid for literature reviews. You start with a big picture, narrow it down, narrow it down, or turn it the other way up and, and make it a normal pyramid. And those sort of mental shortcuts, as silly as they are, are actually really, really helpful. Because I think people can really appreciate metaphor they can really appreciate stories analogies something that catches their interest and they can quickly remember it when they're trying to write and I do think that thinking is writing so when you're there with a blank page in front of you and, and all you've got is is sort of silly things to fall back on like these you know methodology formula or the title constructomatic I think it just makes things a lot quicker a lot easier I don't assume that somebody else has taught them how to do things in the way that I would expect and um, particularly, you know, I, I'm dealing with students in 60 different countries, you know, the, there's very little chance that they've all had the same sort of education or the same sort of, of, of training in academic writing or research methods. So I think by bringing the lighthearted elements into it, it bypasses some of that. People don't have to feel bad about the fact that they've never done this, that or the other. They can just jump into the slightly wacky way that I will do it with them. And then, as I say, when I hear it back, um, you know, I feel like that is my, my light bulb moment. Yes, it worked. So, yeah, mm -hmm. nothing fancy, but uh, stuff I'm sure that we all do in our own kind of quirky ways.
Yeah, I mean, that. I'm sure that seems very pragmatic and very efficient for getting students to think about research and research method and constructing their own little case study or research very well. That's great. Yep. Thank you, Elizabeth. Pip, what about you? Okay, so in terms of the teaching prop or pedagogy, um, so I'd like to share Rory's story cubes. They are kind of like dice with images on, um, very simple. Um, and I like to use them as an opportunity for things like collaborative storytelling. So storytelling on an island, I think, is quite a, a powerful act. It's kind of fun. It's simple. Uh, you can share your stories. It's quite inclusive. So there's, if there's any other people on the island that maybe feel left out, you can include them in that sort of activity. It's quite accessible and quite interdisciplinary. You could uh, tell stories and share stories collaboratively in that way. Um, so the other idea is um, a really interesting um, notion that I came across called polyvocality. So where everyone has a voice. Um, so you could um, use the Rory Story Cubes as a prompt for um, turn taking with uh, voice. Um, obviously, student voice is a huge thing. Um, so a kind of experiment recently that I did uh, with this sort of approach was um, a crowd-sourced poetry experiment where you leave a series of prompts or images, for example, on the cubes themselves, and allow a range of people to contribute to that particular stimulus, and then you amalgamate all the responses and uh, create, um, uh, in this case, the creative outcome was a poem. So it's a way of um, everyone contributing to something and achieving something. The other thing, possibly a possible teaching prop, is to use something called agile stationery, which is a bit like um, using found objects and sharing them in Zoom situations or team situations. So I think all of those props and approaches would be part of what Blake might call the brave new digital classroom. Fantastic. So can you just explain what does the agile stationary mean? What What's the agile bit in the stationary? Is that mean that it's virtual or the fact? Yeah. So just. Well, I suppose agile, we, we're used to using that word in a kind of in the traditional sense in project management. You know, you have to yeah. manage your project in a, a challenging situation in an agile capacity to make sure that you work around uh, people to achieve something. So you, you can't do the waterfall approach. You can't stick to the plan. So my experience in teaching and learning um, and working in universities is when you try and contribute or support, support a project, you have to do it in that way because the teaching and the learning, the students come first, period. So um, the Agile Stationery, it, it, it's, 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 I think it's a company in itself. So they've created this term. And um, I discovered their products uh, throughout the online uh, the, the user, throughout the pandemic as part of the online pivot. Um, and it was—it's just a way of using a, a card or a, 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 um, a, with a picture to communicate a particular idea. So instead of using non-verbal feedback on Zoom, for example, um, you could actually use. Um, 
in, in the basic sense, a, a piece of paper or a card. So, so stu students could actually create their own agile stationery to personalize the, the whole online classroom experience, which is also quite important. So to be honest with you, agile as metaphor is what we've all had to be as, as, edu as educators throughout the, particularly the online uh, pivot because we've all had to change. I, I believe that the pivots kind of forced us, our, all of our identities to change a little bit and in terms of how to cope with and manage uncertainty. Um, and it, it hasn't been easy for anybody, but so in the widest, most metaphorical understanding, we've all had to be agile like hell. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, let's say if post-it note was a normal stationery in the virtual world, do you mean like a um, picture of a post-it note or do you just mean that like students would represent things on these cards that could be anything that they are then used in the teaching as, as props? Or so, um, the, no, actually what you've actually come up with some good ideas there so the the, the company itself i bought some of their uh, a card deck of their mm -hmm. um their products so it was just things like you're on mute basic things like oh, that okay yeah so it's just it, it you see the same things uh, the same signs and signals within zoom and teams itself but it's it's a paper-based version so sometimes they don't work if you've got a virtual background so you've got to be aware of that, um, you know, these these difficulties, these Zoom difficulties that we have. Um, but yeah, so it's, 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 there's nothing complex here. It's really just basic. It's words and images um, mm -hmm. in an online classroom and how you make the most of them to achieve your learning outcomes um, and to make sure your students are happy and engaged. Brilliant. Okay, that's, yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and before I ask you to maybe barter ideas, can we just quickly go around and if you can share your luxury items? So obviously you've been teaching a lot with coming up with loads of ideas, engaging your students nationally, internationally in, in engaging their curiosity. But in terms of you now relaxing somewhere in a quiet corner of the island, what would your luxury items be to relax off duty, off teaching? God, I'm happy to go first. So yeah. mine would be uh, Audible, but all of it, the whole thing, <laughs> the whole library of Audible. Um, so this is the books that are read yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's fine because we do have Wi-Fi on the island, students, <laughs> so that's fine as long as, yeah, it is for your relaxation. I was worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Chris. Thank you. It sounds quite soppy, but I've got I've got a two-year-old son, and I'm very fortunate to only work four days a week. So every Thursday, I leave my phone at home and I just come out with him for the day. And we're we're quite lucky in that five minutes away from us, we've got a building site in one direction, a farm in the other, and then a forest in the other. So depending on what he's into at that moment, um, we can usually find something to entertain him. And so yeah, I just go out, leave my phone at home, and forget about the other four days in the week where I'm at work. And so that's can I can I bring my son to the island? I'm not sure. I don't know. I think. I on on for instance our inspired uh, desert island is that humans are not allowed. But I know yeah. I have slipped up and did let people bring uh, people. <laughs> so, uh, but I think already just the fact that you're choosing, um, I love the way that 
how you have different options and then depending on whatever the mood is you have different corners to explore which is quite nice yeah thanks gary elizabeth I feel quite jealous now. I mean, I have three sons, so I would leave them at home, to be honest, if I want to have some relaxation. But, you know, different stages. Um, I, I actually want to take uh, Audible and steal it from Christopher. So, you know, sorry about that. Can we share our luxury items? Because I'm going to bring with me the most whiz-bang coffee machine, which I think Gary might quite like. And, you know, an unending supply of, of, of coffee to be able to fill them. But when I, when I was thinking about this, I think actually my other luxury item, you know, I'd be wanting a bit of tech. I, I don't think I could completely go tech free. And I had said uh, the highest end webcam because all my communication, teaching, um, even down to my moderation, my whole professional life is through webcams. And I actually run my whole professional life through a 15 pound webcam at the moment, which is shocking, <laughs> absolutely shocking. <laughs> So I want one of these whiz-bang, expensive webcams. And since I've got Wi-Fi, I must also have a device to run this on. So, And then, you know, I'll be able to listen to Audible as well because I've stolen it from Christopher, so it's all good. Yeah, bartering is definitely encouraged. And I can see that that's already working quite well in terms of what you're sharing. What about you, Pip? Well, it's really difficult because it started um, when we talk about. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, with a bit of can delay. You hear me okay, yeah. Okay, apologies. Um, it was really difficult because when we I started to think about the idea of a luxury item, I was like, luxury for who? Because <laughs> we always tend to think about it um, from from our own point of view. But it was really difficult to think about because um, I thought about bringing my guitar because I'm writing. Um, could really sort of help all the stranded people on the Treasure Island. Um, also, I then sort of thought about the ability to set up, bringing equipment to set up a radio station from the island. So this could be called, you know, Treasure Island FM um, or something like that. So throughout the pandemic, I experimented with this myself and created a kind of pop-up radio station called Pivot FM. So that was quite interesting. Um, so I'm not really sure. Uh, it would have to be between the radio station uh, uh, equipment or probably the guitar. Brilliant. This is an amazing. This is an amazing island, actually. I, I really want to go now because I've got a radio station, I've got Audible, I've got coffee, I've got a guitar. I've even got you know other people's children running around that I don't have to look after. So I'm I'm there. I'm there already. When are we going? <laughs> Anything else that, that's perhaps missing that you might want to add to the island? So just peep on the um, pivot station and the radio station. We had our Treasure Island or um, Islands of Innovation Festival recently, and we, we had participants create these islands that they want to, these future islands of education, and one of them was a pirate station radio that would... So it kind of links with that as well quite nicely. So in addition to music, Audible, uh, are there any other things that you could want uh, to add to your islands together? I really like what Elizabeth was saying earlier about that kind of shared international language of teaching. And so I wonder if we can make a dictionary or something along those lines of these, these universal terms which transcend local cultures and languages because that, that really struck a chord with me when you said that as well Elizabeth because I've been working on some of our international 
teacher education stuff recently. And it's something I found quite interesting is those terms being used perfectly contextually correctly, but by someone whose English is maybe not their best language or speaking English as a second language and so forth. So that really struck a chord with me. So I think, yeah, we should make a dictionary. I think if we have this number of, of academics and educators in the same space, we're going to end up with something really amazing one way or the other. And probably a bit of technological flair thrown in with all these uh, learning technology people as well. Not not just like a text-based dictionary, but really something rather special. Uh, we could, uh, yeah, then we could go on the world tour to promote it with everybody, you know, virtually or in person. Either way. In fact, we might need now a whole cruise liner, Tunde. I'm sorry, but you may have to fork out for some, some way to get us off the island and back again because it's going to be like the coolest island ever. But we may want to go and visit and share the, you know, share the knowledge and expertise around the world on our world tour of, of education. This is becoming ever more bizarre by the moment, but I'm liking it. Let's go. <laughs> I, I like the idea of the dictionary, but a living dictionary as well, and almost like an Esperanto and, and lang language of education, which is very much a language of education, is international, isn't it? So maybe for your cruises, we could think about um, some trailers, you know, some advertisement for these cruises so that you get people on board and then uh, as they come off the island or return back. It's almost keeping in touch as well with each other in one way or another. Yeah? Good. Sounds good. Any final touches? I've, I've just had a thought. So I was remembering at the start of this podcast, I said I'm not quite sure how I got from teaching Latin to technology-enhanced learning. And just thinking about what we're saying now about this kind of universalizability of teaching language and so forth, making me think about how, you know, Latin was the language of learned source for the vast majority of European history until 120 years ago. Maybe I can tell myself that that's how I got into scholarship and teaching research. It was that hunger for the, the current lingua franca and the, the language of all educated source. Maybe that was what it was. Okay, so sounds like we will have a lovely time on the island uh, with all sorts of uh, luxury items, but also Dealing, dealing or talking about education and doing education. Okay, great. Uh, I mean, that, that's, I think, that, that's what we had time for, brilliant discussions. Uh, so what we will do now is sail away um, to our treasure islands together. <laughs> Thank you very much to our uh, listeners for listening. And if you enjoyed our episode, you can subscribe to our podcast. If you want to become a guest, uh, you can find our expression of interest form on our CIE, Live Uni CIE podcast website, where you can also access our blogs to our previous episodes. And just wanted to say goodbye for now. And finally, a big thank you to our guest today. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye.